been a little bit of a <clears throat> strange week for me. I was not feeling very good most of the week. So, um, as they say in Texas, I was feeling a little puny. I don't know why they call that when you're sick, but um, as we read scripture, I think it becomes very evident that there are two aspects of our responsibility to the gospel. And that's protection of it and the purity of it. There was a, a man who was a poor prospector named Jacobus Yonker who worked tirelessly searching for a fortune on his small farm in South Africa. And after a sudden uh, thunderstorm, he decided to walk out onto his land and see if the rain washed anything up. Well, eventually he came across an unusual stone. It was about the size of a hand's egg. And he picked up the stone, wiped off the mud, and gasped. It happened to be a, a diamond. Trembling with excitement, he ran home to show the stone to his family. A few days later, he sold the stone, which happened to be a 726-carat diamond, for $315,000. Makes me wonder, what would you do if you were Jacobus Yonker? What would you do to protect that stone? Would you find a secure vault to put it in? Would you safeguard that treasure? Well, we found something that's even more precious than huge diamonds. Suppose you ended up discovering the priceless gift of freedom in Christ. Through Christ and only Christ, you have a treasure that is eternal. And its value is beyond compare. And so what happens is we reach out our hands and we receive this precious gift. But the question is, will you safeguard this treasure? Will you keep all the thieves away from breaking in and taking this away? The Galatian Christians had this precious jewel. It's called the gospel. And yet they allowed thieves to break in and rob their freedom in Christ. The Apostle Paul was very shocked about this, so he wrote this letter to the, to the Galatians defending the gospel of grace and urging them to protect what was rightfully theirs in Christ. Paul told them how deadly these false teachers were to the body of Christ. Actually, in, in chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, If we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now that word accursed in the Greek is the word anathema. You know what that actually means? It means damned to hell without the hope of redemption. That's how toxic a false teacher and a false gospel is. But you know, there is a matter of not only safeguarding it, but the purity of it. Having gospel fidelity. Did you know that if you took one tablespoon of potassium cyanide, which, by the way, just looks like sugar or salt, and you put it in a room with 43 people, 90% of them would be dead within six hours. That's 39 of 43. Within just a few hours of having this one little tablespoon of powder, this harmless-looking powder, sitting in a room, Potassium cyanide is one of the most fatal substances in the world. It's an, it's an absolute killer, and that's why terrorists are after it. But however poisonous and toxic potassium cyanide is, that kills our flesh. There's something even more poisonous, more toxic, even more deadly. 
And that's trying to mix something else with Christ for salvation. And I've said, said it many times from this pulpit, Christ is everything or He's nothing. This epistle was written because of the danger of a poison, a toxic gospel that was seeping into the Galatian church. This deadly mix of trying to, to mix something else with Christ for salvation. In this letter, it begins, the first two chapters are just really the gospel experience. It gives us a spiritual biography of the Apostle Paul, where he shows us that if Christ is not everything, he's nothing. And then in verses or chapters 3 and 4, that's where you get into gospel theology. That's, what, that's where he explains why it is Christ. Why it is Christ alone. And then in these last two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, it's really the gospel applied. And so let's go ahead and turn to our text for this morning. It's found in Galatians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Galatians chapter 5. Starting with verse 1, it says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Now, if you were to read the epitaph of David, which is we find in Acts chapter 13, you would see that there's something that is very, very clear. And that is that David served the Lord. As a matter of fact, I just invite you to turn to Acts chapter 13, and we'll look at this. Let's turn to Acts 13, and starting with verse 36. And this is what the Lord said about King David and about the law of Moses. Starting with verse 36, it says, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he, that meaning Jesus, whom God raised up, saw no corruption. Remember, Jesus rose on the third day. It was the fourth day that they considered the corrupt one. Remember Lazarus when he was being called from the grave? It said, the fourth day. And, and I love it when it says it in, the, in the, uh, uh, the King James. It says, he stinketh. That's when corruption saw. Christ was not in the grave after three days. He was raised on the third day. And so it continues, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified. For all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. You see, serving God is what really matters in eternity. And life on 
on earth here comes down to one question. Who are you serving? Who will you serve this day? Serving God is what we're called to do. And a servant is what we're called to be. We do one thing, serve God. We are called to be one thing, a servant of God. Salvation starts the process as we are transformed from Satan's dominion into God's. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of explain this in a way that I think will make a little bit more sense. I, I heard it from a sermon from Dr. John Barnett, and he says it this way. When we come to Christ in repentance and faith, we receive a new heart. That's the software for our operating system. And at that point, we are empowered to serve the Lord. But here's the challenge. That new operating system, our new life in Christ, is carried out with an old vehicle. It has old hardware. That's our body. And it's supposed to carry out the wishes of God, but sometimes it can't. Because there's new software, old system. Our minds sometimes entertain doubts and questions. We listen to our flesh and it pours over these streams of fears and, and anxieties and all kinds of rebellions. And we get almost paralyzed by indecision and uncertainties of what we're actually supposed to do. That ends up being an everyday thing while we're on this planet Earth. And that's good. It's good because otherwise, like we saw in our call to worship, sacrifice you do not desire. He doesn't desire us to sacrifice things. He desires us to be the sacrifice to sacrifice ourselves to Him in service. And so, if that wasn't there, we would start to think we were pretty good. We'd start to think by our own works, we're, we got it all, all made. We're all good. But God's Word clearly warns us that we do not conquer our flesh by physical means. We don't conquer our flesh by human resolve, self-effort, we don't conquer our, our flesh by religious activity. Flesh is only conquered by the power of the cross through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. One of the clearest descriptions of the warfare that we have throughout our life is found in Galatians 5:17. There it says, "For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh." And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. You see, we all need to come to the realization that flesh doesn't conquer flesh. No matter how much we make resolve and promises and we fight in our own power, we just find that it leads to defeat. Victory over sin can only be found by yielding to the power of the cross. And what is the power of the cross? It is the defeat of death, sin, and Satan that Jesus Christ accomplished once and for all. This is exactly the point that Paul is trying to make in our text. And again, in verse 1, he says, Stand, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not become entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now the first thing that we see is this verse really calls us to seek liberty. To pursue freedom. You cannot stand fast in something that you don't understand. When you try to live your life under the law, you end up putting yourself back under the yoke of bondage. Or in some versions, it says the yoke of slavery. Now, the Jews, of course, they wanted to have these works that they could do. 
And so they ended up going through all the precepts of the law, and they concluded that there are 613 total laws. The 613 laws were divided into negative and positive commands. 365 of them were negative, and 248 of them were positive. Well, this ended up being a heavy yoke for anyone to bear. Paul says, in view of the fact that Jesus has set you free from this slavery yoke and this law and legalism, why in the world would you ever submit yourself to it again? You should love your freedom. And you should never want to come back under the legal Old Testament law again. Christ has set you free from the law and your guilt and your sin. What the Apostle Paul is saying to the Galatians is, I want you to be free. I want you to be liberated. I want you to be emancipated. But you are just turning to the slavery again. And what kind of slavery? Well, the New Testament in particular points to four types of spiritual slavery. The first one is slavery of sin. The second one is the power of sin. The third one is the penalty of sin. And the fourth is the curse of sin. And that's the punishment that is due sin. And many of us can remember it, and maybe some of us are actually still know much about this. Maybe you're in it right now. Maybe you're held by the power of sin's enslavement. You have a fear. You know the pain of your conscience. You know the dread. You have a sense of the punishment that is due. But we must remember that when the Lord Jesus Christ looked out and he saw the people that were heavy laden with their sin, their burden, they were laboring as much as they could. They were trying their best to get to heaven on their own, their own efforts. He looked out at these miserable, uncomfortable people wearing these heavy yokes. And he said, come to me, all you who labor are, are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What he's saying is all these good works you're putting yourself under, all these good intentions, all these good resolutions, they're nothing but a yoke of bondage. And so Jesus comes to us and he says, I'll give you rest. Just put away this false way of salvation. Pastor John MacArthur says there's only two religions in the world. The religion based on human achievement and the religion based on divine grace. In other words, we need to ask, do I magnify my own achievements or do I humbly bow beneath the grace of God? That's actually the issue facing every person. You know, I think it's interesting. There was a, a study, a survey, focusing on evangelical Protestants. And of all the hundreds of people that were, were uh, studied, 36% of evangelical Protestants claimed to be born again. Here's the staggering thing. Only 9% say that they had a biblical understanding of what it means to be saved by grace alone through faith alone. 9%. That means there are a lot of people in the evangelical Protestant uh, world living under some kind of legalistic bondage. Jesus went to the cross to set us free from our guilt, our sin, and the law. And so Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm. I think it's interesting, the Greek word is stako, 
It's like stay put, stand firm, persevere, persist. And this is actually, um, in the Greek, an imperative. This is a command to God's people. Stand firm in the freedom of the grace of God. This means stay fixed in a fixed spot. And that fixed spot is God's grace. A New Testament believer is called by commandment to stand firm in faith. Actually, Paul in 1 Corinthians 16.1 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have also given orders to the churches of Galatia, so must you also. So this isn't just for the Galatians. This is for all the churches. Stand firm. And in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 27, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or not, or, or I am absent, I may hear of your affair, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then in Philippians 1.27, Paul says, only let, or I mean uh, Philippians 4.1, he adds to this saying, stand firm in the Lord. And then here, he says, stand firm in liberty, in freedom. Stand firm in Christ. Don't be swayed to any kind of legalistic law. Don't be swayed to to start to feel like you need to partake in man's traditions or any denominational codes. It's interesting that the noun yoke means not only that we are enslaved to the Old Testament law, but also the character and quality of any legal code or system. We should not be involved in a church that tries to Say you need to abide by these laws that have nothing to do with Scripture. Or to try to twist Scripture to make it sound like, hey, you might have salvation, but you're not going to have it unless you do this, 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 and this. Paul is saying, stand firm in the freedom you have. Because when a believer puts himself back under the Old Testament law, he cancels out the benefits of the relation with Christ. And that's why in verse 2, he goes on to say, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ is of no profit. Now, just so you know, this is not all about circumcision. Circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. This is saying, don't mix up the signs with the reality. Don't mix up a sign I mean, I don't sit there and go, oh, hey, it says Wisconsin Dells 20 miles and think I'm there because I saw the sign. I go, no, I have 20 miles to go. The, the circumcision was just saying, this is the covenant. You are God's chosen people. You are the people that will be holding and handling the word of God. Everything that God speaks will come through you. It was never meant to be salvational. And when we slip back into seeking God's favor on the basis of our performance, we nullify the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We're actually saying the cross is insufficient. And not only that, we're saying that we need to add something. Our own righteousness to Christ's righteousness. That Christ, what he did on the cross, wasn't enough to pay the debt. And maybe that's that sin and guilt that we're dealing with, that we go, oh, you know, I know what I've done. I, I, I know Christ died for me on the cross, but man, oh man, there's got to be something else that happens here because that can't be enough. And so, as soon as we act as if our righteousness is needed, Christ's righteousness is of no value. And in verse 3, Paul says, and I testify again to every man who becomes 
circumcised, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. To actually keep the whole law. Say, well, I'm just going to do a little. You can't. You can't. I mean, that's like someone who wants to become a citizen of the United States. So he goes down to the uh, Office of Immigration and Naturalization, and they give him a list of things that he needs to go, and he needs to learn the laws of the land and everything. And then he becomes a citizen of this country. And as soon as he does, he goes, I don't want to be a citizen of this country and follow its rules. No! you do it, that's what you desire. Now you're going to go, oh, I want to follow the rules of Argentina, or I want to follow the rules of Spain, or I want to follow the rules of Germany. No, you follow the rules of the United States. It's foolishness to go, I'm going to bring something else that I need to hold to. You would just think, what a foolish person. Obey the laws of this country, not some other country. So Paul argued that if a man was circumcised, that he actually put himself under an obligation to obey the whole law. When we move from the righteousness of Christ to our own righteousness, we place ourselves under an obligation of the whole law. I mean, we are under the protection of the cross. Just imagine if you were at a resort in Mexico. And you leave this resort, you leave its protection. And as soon as you do, you need to follow every single law that the Mexican government says, even though you're not from that country. But while you're at the resort, there's a standard. It's like saying, well, Lord, I know that when I'm under you, I obey you, not for salvation, but because of my love for you. And now, I don't need to do these other things that these other people were doing in order to gain salvation. I am under the cross. But see, the Lord says we can't pick and choose what we're going to obey. As soon as we put ourselves under obeying the law, we need to keep every single uh, command absolutely perfectly. And that's the, the moral law of God that's summarized in the Ten Commandments. And you know, It's, it's ridiculous when we think about the fact that Christ already did that on our behalf. When we are in Him, He's done that. For us to say, no, we're going to do this because we still have to earn favor with God. You know, a good way to think about this is that the law demands and the gospel provides. The law demands, and the gospel provides. That's a pretty easy way to think of it, isn't it? You see, the law tells us what we need. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us what we need. The law says we must be perfectly righteous. The gospel says a perfect righteousness is not of your own. The law says all sin and must be judged, and the gospel provides a sin-bearing substitute in the person of Jesus Christ to fulfill that. The law says do. The gospel says done. The law reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel provides righteousness from God. That's why the law and the gospel are almost always found together in Scripture and oftentimes in the same verse. I'll give you one. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. Right there you have the law. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel. 
Just to further this a little bit, if you would please turn to Romans chapter 3 and verses 19 through 22. Romans chapter 3. Starting with verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. You get that? Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Why? That every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may, be become, may become guilty before, before God. The law is there to show us our inability. It's not to cleanse us. It's to show us we can't. And so what does it say? Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And here it goes. I love when it says, but now. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, and even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. If you notice the first thing that it's saying, is that the purpose of the law in verses 19 and 20 is to reveal our unrighteousness, to render us guilty, to close our mouths before God, to sit there and think, well, God, I've been a pretty good person. I've done a lot of really good things. Boom! Law says, no, you haven't. Shut your mouth. Because you haven't. God knows. Without the law, there would be no need of the gospel. The law shows us our sin, and therefore we need a Savior. Without bad news, there would be no good news. If the law never made you sick, you would need no remedy from the gospel. The law, as it is a perfect representation of God's own righteous character shows us our unrighteousness and condemns us for it. It leaves us guilty before God. It leaves us condemned as an unrighteous sinner. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Historically, almost all of our forefathers understood the necessity to preach the law in preparation for the gospel. I mean, after all, people don't know. If they don't, if they don't think they need a Savior, why would they receive a Savior? Charles Spurgeon said it this way, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel that does not preach the law. The law is the needle. And you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make a way for it. If men do not understand the law, they will not feel that they are sinners. And if they are not consciously sinners, they will never value the sin offering. There is no healing a man till the law has wounded him, no making him alive until the law has slain him. End quote. I love that. That is just exactly what the gospel is. None of this cheap grace. None of this, hey, you want a better life? You want to live your best life now? Let's come forward. Let's all sing kumbaya. That is not saving souls, people. That might be filling churches. But we need to be concerned about eternity. And then the second thing we notice as is mentioned in Romans 3, 21 and 22, is the purpose of the gospel. The gospel reveals a righteousness from God, which is received only by faith. And this is to say that in the gospel, there is a righteousness answerable to the law. 
In other words, all the law demands is provided in Christ. And how is this obtained? The righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all who believe. This righteousness is apart from the works of the law. And so verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's an unrighteousness that's unmixed with our efforts, unmixed with any of our deeds. And this has been talked about by the prophets. Paul speaks out about the whole collective Old Testament Scripture, that it foretold the Gospel by telling of the law. In other words, the righteousness of the Gospel is nothing new. It's already been shown through the Old Testament saints, through types and promises. Therefore, the Apostle would say in Romans 1.1 that he was separated to the Gospel of God, which promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He knew he knew because it was promised from, from the beginning. And so continuing with verse 4 of our text, it says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Some people go, well, I believe in Christ. I believe in God, but I think it's good if I just do some good things. Sort of help it out. Sort of make sure, just that, you know, I know God died for sin, but, you know, I really don't understand that whole thing. I don't really understand the, the, the fullness of the sacrifice. So I think I'm just going to help this whole situation out. Paul says what you've done is you just cancel Christ. What you've done is you've just become estranged from Christ. There is no hybrid salvation. If you think you can mix, you've just made Christ no benefit. if you think that there is something necessary for your salvation apart from Christ, you just forfeited Christ. If you think that by being baptized, by being confirmed, that by praying a prayer, by coming forward, doing all of this stuff, that that is something that you needed to do in order to be saved. You need to go through this process You just made Christ of no benefit. What we do is respond to the call of Jesus Christ. All men everywhere are called to repent and believe in the one who paid it all. That's what we do. That is not a work, it's a response. To a work of God. And so, there's too many people that say, well, you know what? In order to be saved, I must be baptized. No! When you are saved, you go, I want to be baptized because that's an obedient act to, the, to, to God. But that is not salvational. You do not have to do it in order to be saved. You do it because you're saved. You do it because you go, I want to serve Him. Romans 11.6 says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, or grace is no more grace. It is either grace or works. It is either all of Christ or none of Christ. 
God cannot accept us on the basis of our own righteousness. We don't have any. Isaiah 64, 6 says all our righteousness are, is like filthy rags. They're worthless. Have you ever seen those TV commercials where they have two white garments and they get them all stained and they put one in a certain detergent in a washing machine and then they take another one and put it in another detergent and then they pull them out and the one is spotless and the other one still looks dingy and dirty. That's really a good example. Put it in the detergent of the blood of Christ or you put it in the detergent of your own works. It comes back and it ends up still dirty, which means it's still unacceptable to God. When we seek to justify ourselves by our own righteousness, we alienate ourselves from Christ and we fall away from grace. Scripture, now, I want to point this out. Scripture definitely uh, teaches the doctrine called perseverance of the saints. And it's basically this, and I, I really don't care for this term, but once saved, always saved. And the reason I don't like that is some people think it's a, a license to live foolishly, to live in your sin, thinking, well, Christ paid for it. This doesn't matter. And so it ends up a cheap grace. But that's not what the the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is. What the doctrine is saying is that eternal life means eternal life. If you are promised eternal life and it is an eternal what it's not eternal life. That's basically what it's saying. The Dutch reform theologian Herman Bavnik said Whatever apostasy occurs in Christianity, it may never prompt us to question the unchanging faithfulness of God, the certainty of His counsel, the enduring character of His covenant, and the trustworthiness of His promises. It is not just a handful of texts that teach the perseverance of the saints. It's the entire gospel that sustains and and confirms it. You see, there is a thing that the Bible talks about, and that's apostasy. Apostasy is being exposed to the truth of the gospel, seemingly embracing it, and then turning away. The Bible gives us numerous examples of this. There are many people. It's like the the seed that falls on the path, and it sprouts up and then dies off. Those aren't true Christians. True Christians persevere. Why? Because they have been granted eternal life. There's a number of examples of people who have heard the gospel in the Bible, who made professions of faith and then turned away. They were temporarily attracted to Christ, but not savingly. If you would, just turn to uh, John chapter 2. In verses 23 through 25. John chapter 2. And by the way, we don't have the same insight that Jesus does. So as we read this, we can see where he sees the heart. We can't. Someone may accept Christ at one point, receive him, fall away, and that another time truly be converted. So we don't give up. It's not a matter of, well, you know what? You've already had your chance. Huh. Am I ever... I praise God that didn't happen to me. Here in John chapter 2 and verse 23, it says, Now, when He, meaning Jesus, was in Jerusalem at Passover, during the feast, 
many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He didn't give himself to them because what they received is they saw these signs. They saw all these miracles and they said, I'm on. That's it. We see it all the time. You ever hear the term jump on the bandwagon? There you go. It happens in Christianity. It happens where people go, hey, there's a new church in town. Let's all go there because that's the place to be. Well, not so much here, but you know. <laughs> but you know what? We, we end up going, it's not about jumping on the bandwagon. It, it's a matter of jumping on that train that leads to heaven. Not just coming to this church. But here's one thing I want to show you. In chapter 6, if you turn a little farther forward, John chapter 6 and verse 60, John records where Jesus is speaking to these same people. He's talking to these same people. Starting with verse 60. It says, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Christ knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. You get what it's saying? It goes back to John 3.3. 3. I tell you the truth that you must be born again. Unless the Spirit has been quickened by Almighty God, you will not believe. And when it has, you cannot not believe. Because He has quickened the Spirit, which makes your spirit cry out to Him. You then see the cross for what it is. And when the Gospel is presented, you respond to it. Because He has made... Here's the difference. If I go to a funeral home, and I say, hey, I want to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, how are they going to respond? Just stiff. They're not going to hear. Why? They don't have ears to hear. They don't have eyes to see. But when the Spirit of God enters that person and gives them new life, boom, eyes to see, ears to hear, they respond I want to tell you the gospel. There you have it. Now you have someone who goes, yes, this is the one who saved me. Saved me from my wretchedness. You see, these disciples here, which just means followers, they weren't truly committed to Christ alone as Savior. Martin Luther actually said uh, and strongly asserted that if you think that Jesus Christ and the law can live together, then Christ is not in your heart and you are not saved. In fact, Luther said that if someone believed the law could help make them right with God, they were actually heading to wrath and judgment. John MacArthur says, when you get to the brink of considering whether you're going to believe and receive Christ by faith or go by the way of works, understand this. Turn your back on Christ and you sever yourself from Him. Here he's speaking of unconverted folks. If you notice 
here in verse 5? He uses a different pronoun. He calls him you. Because, or verse 4, I mean. Because look at what it says in verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. The pronoun in verse 4 was you. You, unbeliever. Now he says we. Speaking of himself as well. If we wait for the hope of righteousness, it's because it's a gift from God. It's through the Holy Spirit by faith that we eagerly await for the hoped righteousness. We can't earn it. We're waiting for it. And in our sanctification, the Lord gives us the gift of grace that one day, in our glory, we will be made absolutely perfect. And in verse 6, he says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You see, folks, that's all that matters. The whole law is fulfilled by faith and love in believing God, in loving God. It's something that's all gone internal. It's not on the outside. It's not through circumcision. It's something internal. It's the circumcision of the heart. Faith works internally in us. Our hearts are literally drawn to God in trust. And that's what faith is. We live trusting God. We live loving God. And as a result, we love those people around us. You see, it's a working faith. It's a living faith. It's a growing faith. It's an increasing faith. It's a growing love. An increasing love. A multiplying love. Let me ask you this question. What is the one thing that you could do to make yourself a better Christian? What is one thing you should do to make yourself a better Christian? There's a man named Paul Miller that asked this question to hundreds of people in seminars and churches and seminaries. Do you know what they said? Go to church, read the Bible, Pray, study, obey, stop sinning, blah, blah, blah. Those are not bad things. But not one single person ever said faith. Not one person said faith. If you would please turn to Second Peter Chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 5 through 11. And now this is a this is a a list that is progressive. 2 Peter chapter 1 starting with verse 5. But also for this reason, giving all diligence. What does it say? Add to your faith virtue. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. You know... There's a lot, there are a lot of people who think that you just go out and you love everyone. This is progressive, and it's, love isn't the first thing. Love is the last thing. Because it's faith. Add to your faith virtue. 
Virtue, knowledge. Knowledge, self-control. Self-control, perseverance. Perseverance, godliness. Godliness, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness to love. And it says, if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I can't think of too many scriptures that are more terrifying than the ones today where people think you can have a hybrid Christianity where you go through these religious things thinking that you're pleasing God by doing it. If you think your works are part of your salvation, Christ profits you nothing. You're actually in debt to the whole law. You're in debt to keeping it perfectly and you sever yourself from Christ. The bottom line is if you spend your life trying to earn your way to heaven, it's a place you'll never be. Christians wait in faith and love. They walk in the Spirit and let Him do the work. Your physical condition isn't the important thing. Your religious works or habits are not the important thing. Faith working through love is. And that's what matters in our relationship to Christ. Because true faith, the work of the Holy Spirit based on the relationship of Christ manifests itself through works of love. When we have faith, we do those things knowing I have been saved by a Savior that has paid a debt that I cannot pay who stands in my place in heaven before the Father and says, this one is mine. We have nothing to add. And because of our love for him, we end up doing those things. We end up going to Bible study and praying. And we help the poor. And we do all those things. Not to earn favor with God, but because of who we are. One of the most important things is that we need to remember it is by Christ and Christ alone. Faith and faith alone. Grace and grace alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that no one walks out of here this morning thinking that salvation is in their hands based on their work. I pray that if they find themselves under the bondage of the law, severed from Christ, fallen from grace, that they would understand that their only hope is in the righteousness that only He produces. Lord, we all need to come to Christ with empty hands and receive the gift of salvation so that you will forever and ever receive all glory so that none can boast. You've done it all. By grace, you've given us the faith to believe. May your power and your truth move on the hearts that are here this morning. There are maybe people who 
probably believed the facts concerning Christ, but have never confessed their spiritual bankruptcy and brokenness, their utter incompetence to provide anything of merit to add to their salvation. But I pray that they would fully embrace you and you alone. And may this be the day that they turn from no hope to all hope. That you would show your mighty power in setting us free. We are so grateful that your message in Scripture is so clear. And I pray that we would faithfully proclaim it. And we would do so in the name of our Savior's most precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen.